I'm going to take you back to 1989. Good times. Who was even alive back in 1989? All right, very good. Now, here's a couple of fun facts about 1989. The first episodes of The Simpsons were aired in 1989. The Game Boy was released. Who had a Game Boy? Yep. Paisley ties became a thing in 1989, apparently. If you still own a Paisley tie, it's time to retire it. All right. Top movies were classics such as Batman, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Back to the Future 2, and the movie we watch every Christmas, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Classic. And the list goes on and on and on about what was so good about 1989. You can have a look maybe when you go home at the classic songs from 1989 and just go through them and reminisce. But in 1989, I was living in Emerald in central Queensland. Anyone ever been to Emerald before? Yep, mining town, stinking hot, 300 kilometres due west of Rockhampton. I was in year nine in 1989 and life was amazing. As a 14-year-old boy, there was cricket in the summertime, footy in wintertime, tennis, golf, and everything else to do with sport every other time of the year. We went swimming in the local river, riding our bikes all over town. Life was great. However, halfway through year nine, my life got a little interrupted, and I still remember this very vividly. It was a lunchtime at school and word had filtered back to me that a particular colossus in year 11 wanted to beat my head in after school at the bike racks. Sounds cliche, but it's very true. Now, at that point, in hearing that, I was a little concerned. And as a year nine boy, if you think about year nine, year eight, year nine, you still probably haven't, unless you've been on a diet of broccoli and chicken, you haven't really bulked up. Year 11 though, even though it's just two years, I'm pretty sure the guy that was wanting to beat me to a pulp had been on broccoli and chicken probably in the womb and ever since. <laughs> a very large specimen. So here I was, a skinny little 14-year-old, thinking... Okay, I've got two lessons until the end of perhaps my life, or at least the end of school. Now, I had two kind of advantages, I thought. One, I had a reasonable grasp of the English language, and at times could talk my way out of situations, at times got myself into awkward situations because of my mouth. It still happens today, probably. But... The other advantage is I could run a little bit faster than the average teenage boy. So I thought, at the very least, I'll go to the bike racks and I'll just say, look, what's the issue? So the bell rings, I walk to the bike rack, but don't for a moment think that I was walking by myself because in the space of two lessons, the word had got around the whole school that there was going to be a fight <laughs> at the bike rack. So I'm walking down to the bike racks with my friends who are going, this is going to be so rad. Remember that word? <laughs> Rad, you're going to get your head beaten in. Great. So I get down to the bike racks, and there's my sister, my older sister, going, you're going to get your head punched in. I'm thinking, man, everyone's on my side. 
So there was this massive group of people, and I'd love to be saying I'm understating it, but there was this massive group of people that had gathered around. They kind of parted as I sort of walked in. It was a bit sort of like, you know, UFC with the octagon, you know, there's no way out, <laughs> locked in the cage. And so this is how the dialogue went with, and, and the guy's name's Chris. I'm sure he's not going to be listening to this podcast. He said very, very clearly, and I don't think at that point my voice had even broken, so, you know, that just made the disparity even worse. He's like, put your bag down. And I'm like, okay, so I put my bag down. And he's like, right, I'm going to give you to the count of 10, and then I'm going to punch your head in. And I'm like, okay, why? And he's like, just because. And I'm like, well... That's not a very good reason. <laughs> Followed by a range of expletives. And then he just launched straight into 10. And I just took off. <laughs> just, as, just as the crowd had parted to let me in, it parted to let me out. And I didn't even hear him say nine. And I reckon he did, I reckon he did that. You know when you used to do hide and seek and, you know, you start at 100, you know, it's 199, zero, bang. I reckon he did that because I turned around and he was on my hammer. And so the oval where the bike racks were at Emerald State High School, the bike racks were on one side of the oval. I ran as fast as I could to the other side of the oval. And it, in terms of fight or flight, I was in complete flight mode. I wasn't even thinking. I got to the fence, jumped the fence, ran across the road, and then across the road is the Emerald race course. And I jumped the fence of the race course and ran onto the race course. So I'm running around, I'm running around and he's right behind me. And I'm just running up the home straight, like winks, on a good day. And the turf club in Emerald was one of those places where the actual, the clubhouse or the, you know, the, the, the big turf club was quite a, uh, it was a reasonable establishment. So people had a lot of functions there. And on this particular day, there was a function. Right, so you know how these turf clubs are set up. There's the inside part and then there's the outside part that sort of faces the track. And I'm bolting down the race course with old mate behind me and we run past a function in progress where all the people are standing just there and they were all policemen. Chris's dad happened to be a policeman. So I go zooming past and I hear a few people because obviously they had, you know, a few ales. A few people yelling, giddy up. <laughs> and all of a sudden I hear this voice, Chris, in the way that only a dad can speak to a son. Now, at that point, all the strength was with Chris, given his size, and all the vulnerability was with me. In that moment, the whole power dynamic shifted. Chris stopped. I naturally stopped and he walked over to his father and then his father yelled out to me, Rogers, come over here. Not that I was known to the police for other reasons. <laughs> and in that moment, a classic, classic thing happened. He said to me, the dad, what is going on here? And I had, right at that moment, the opportunity to completely and utterly throw Chris under the bus, like 100% to the point where he probably wouldn't have come to school for the rest of his life. 
I don't know why, maybe it's just because I'm a reasonable human being. But I said, oh, well, we, just, we just had a bet. I just bet Chris that I could run from the bike racks and around the race course and back to the bike racks quicker than him. That was the best I could come up with. And in hindsight, that wasn't too bad. <laughs> the look on Chris's face was pure relief. His dad said, how much did you bet? Um, like 50 bucks? Because that that's a lot of money to a 14-year-old, right? And I'm not sure if $100 notes were even invented. Even if they were, I'd never seen one at 14. The dad said, all right, then away you go. So I took off around the race course. <laughs> and so did he. He conked out about halfway around, and I kept on going. Chris's dad made him pay me $50. Good outcome. Now, here's the thing about that narrative. That was all true story. But I've crafted that narrative to be able to show some parallels in what's going on both in this text and even in the lead up to it. You've got in your little handout here, you've got a map, all right? So you can see, if you turn over to the second page, David's flight from Saul. Doesn't quite look like a racetrack, but I reckon if someone had a GPS on me, it might have looked a little bit similar to that, not as far in terms of distance. But you can see that David spent a lot of time on the run from Saul, okay? Now, this particular story that I just told you, David was on the run, I was on the run. David faced an aggressor, I faced an aggressor. But most importantly, though, what the narrative that I just told you, and indeed the narrative that we're working with today, what it points to is the use of power, okay? The use of power. Now, power assumes that a person or a people are in a position of strength over and against those who are then in the position or the place of vulnerability, okay? So, in a power dynamic, you need that strength and that vulnerability to be at work. What we encounter just prior to chapter 24 is a situation where Saul is in the position of strength, David and his men are in the position of vulnerability. What we read is this, David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men went to search for him. When David was told, he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. When Saul heard that, he pursued David into the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. David was hurrying to get away from Saul while Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. So you can see that obviously there's, there's some kind of funneling effect that's happening for David and he is basically, I mean, there's, on the side of a mountain, at times there's really nowhere to go, isn't there, if people are closing in on you. Now there was... And I won't go into this, and actually the, the narrator doesn't go into this. There was a, the Philistine intervention is what it's called. There was a dilemma, you know, back at home with the Philistines, and we, we got no details about it other than Saul put the whole thing on pause, went back, dealt with the issue with the Philistines. It's almost like an intermission in a movie or when you get to the end of an episode, if you're binge watching and, you know, you're just waiting for that next episode to kick in. And then when the episode starts again, the whole power dynamic has shifted. So when we look at chapter 24 and it starts off, 
the power dynamic has gone from Saul being in the position of strength and David being the vulnerable one to David now being in the position of strength and Saul being the vulnerable one. Dare I say it, incredibly vulnerable because we read this. He came to the sheepfolds beside the road where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. All right, we'll just keep it PG. I won't go any further than that. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave and obviously, you know, you, you know how sort of like if it's light out here and it's dark in there, you can't sort of see because your eyes are kind of like, you know, and you go into somewhere dark. No way Saul could have seen David and his men in that cave. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And then what does David do? He goes and stealthily cuts off a corner of Saul's cloak. So the whole power dynamic has shifted. And what we see is the way in which Saul uses power and the way in which David uses power are two completely different approaches. And part of that approach is predicated on the types of power that are at work here. Okay, so there's... It, Essentially, we'll look at two types of power, positional power and personal power. Okay? Positional power is developed externally to a person through a position or a title being given to them that provides them with authority over others. Okay? So Saul being made king, that's a position. All right? So you've probably worked in different situations where someone has positional power and authority in which they're your line manager or you report to them. But positional power doesn't necessarily make a leader. Just because you've got the position doesn't mean that you're effective in your leadership just on the basis of that position alone. Personal power is developed intrinsically and is not necessarily dependent on having a position, right? It is that innate capacity that a person has to influence and inspire and lead others. It's that person that you have that sense when you connect with them, you know what? I'd do anything for this person. They really inspire me. They're the kind of person that when I go to work, I really enjoy working with them. They might just be a colleague. So personal power. Saul has been primarily leading from a base of positional power the whole time he's been chasing David. Whereas David's personal power has allowed him to be on the run and all the while gathering more and more people into, in a sense, his posse, if I can put it that way. Finally, and there's, there's just there's 20 hours worth of preaching material in this, so I am sort of zooming past a whole bunch of stuff. But finally, the chase ends up in the wilderness of En Gedi. So you can see on your map there where En Gedi is, just by where it says the salt sea there, you can see En Gedi down there. So that is where this particular narrative ends up. And it's an absolutely pivotal moment in the whole narrative. It's the place where David and Saul finally face off with each other. And in many respects, David says, this is the end. This is it. There's no more running and there's no more pursuing. This is the line in the sand as far as I'm concerned. And so we have two speeches. We have David giving a speech and then we have Saul replying. And those speeches reflect the deepest parts of the character and, in the sense, the, the power that's at work here. So David comes out and in his speech, he definitively 
sets up the fact that Saul will no longer pursue him as an enemy. So he goes about not just defending himself, not just protesting his innocence, but he says, this is who I am, this is what I've done, and may the Lord judge on this. So you are not the judge here. Your position, Saul, doesn't carry any weight here any longer. The language that uh, we read, it's when we hear God has given Saul into David's hands, it reflects the fact that there's more going on here than just two people, one being pursued and one running. God is at work in this situation. God has made it very clear that there's no accident going on here. This is not accidental. It was accidental for me when I was getting chased that I ran past uh, a situation where Chris's dad was there. That's pure coincidence. Maybe there was a bit of God in it because he wanted to keep me alive. But this was not even close to a coincidence. This was God definitively at work. Saul, when he responds... He responds not first of all with words, but he responds in verse 16 in the following way. We read, Saul lifted up his voice and wept. So on this issue of Saul weeping, in Walter Brueggemann's commentary, we read this. No wonder he must cry, for he must acknowledge not only that David will win, and that he will lose, but that his whole effort to be faithful, effective, powerful, and even righteous has failed. He has failed because of the evil spirit and because of the resolve of God, because of the cunning of David and because Saul could finally not be who he wanted so deeply to be. There is here both tragedy and failure. Beneath both tragedy and failure, there is the inconsolate, inarticulate, unmeasured pathos of a life gone empty. And once Saul composes himself and can actually speak, he essentially gives up his positional power. Not necessarily formally, but in here he gives up his positional power. Because in verse 20 we read, Now I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Saul could have gone on for the rest of his life blocking David's path to the throne. Saul needed to acknowledge the anointing of God on David's life in order to be able to make the way possible for David to be able to move in that direction in a way where his life wasn't constantly threatened. Whilst so much more can be said on so much in this text, when it comes to power, one of the interesting things that we see is it's not just the power struggle between David and Saul. There is an underlying power struggle in the whole of 1 Samuel between God and Israel. God's positional power is not determined by who people need to say God is. As Yahweh said to Moses, I am. I mean, you can read that from a positional power point of view and simply go, well, no one else has put that on God. No human is going to come up with that. God is. I am. 
So God's declaration of positional power as God comes from God. Yet throughout this whole book and reflected in the way in which Saul chased after God's anointed, Israel constantly questioned God's positional power, particularly even right back in the beginning when it requested a king so that it could be like everyone else. And by having a king who in that position was more powerful than all the other kings, they would then profit and benefit as a nation. But where does God fit in that picture? So the positional power and the, and, and the wrestling for positional power in the life of Israel can be also seen in the way in which David and Saul wrestle for power. God gave them a king. And how did that go for them? In some respects, Saul is one of the most tragic figures in the Old Testament, perhaps even in the whole Bible. And how do we make sense of some of that tragedy? Well, I don't know, maybe that's another sermon. But one of the things that we know in here is that there was for Saul never that complete willingness to be able to fully give of himself to God's position as God and his position as a servant of God. However, David, God's anointed, a man after God's own heart, was anointed to demonstrate to God's people what their relationship with God was to look like. It's interesting just just hearing what Lee was saying at the beginning that, you know, some people can come into this space and there can be questions around who is God and where's where's my faith and you know what? God's position never changes in terms of how God sees each one of us. No matter the questions that we have or the confusion that we might have, God's position as God means that God's grace and His constant reaching out to us in love never, ever ceases. So beyond what might be confusing in our heads about our situations or whatnot, what we discover here afresh is that God's positional power is never, ever going to stop. And we see God's demonstration of power, I reckon, in the way in which David demonstrates to Saul grace. In that moment where he cut off a portion of his cloak, I want you to think for just a second, without it getting, you know, too messy, but he could have cut off a lot more than just the cloak. And that whole notion of cutting off in that particular vulnerable position, (coughs) David could have very, very easily wiped Saul out completely. I don't know about you, but I've given God plenty of reasons to wipe me out completely. Plenty of ways which I have said, God, you know what, your position... I'm not really overly interested in it. I'm going to put myself above you and I'm going to do my own thing. Thanks very much. Saul did that to David and David responded in the way, and we catch a glimpse of the way in which God's grace works towards us, the way in which God's grace works towards Israel in this particular narrative. And God's grace 
when we experience it, one of the most richest things that we experience is God's mercy. God's, one of God's greatest unmerited favours towards us is God's mercy towards us. And when we truly experience and get a revelation of the mercy that God gives to us, one of the benefits of that is we fully, or as best as we can, we comprehend what could have been. And we can have a sense of what it is, God, that you have done for me based on what you didn't do to me. For Saul, he can clearly see what it is that David did to him, but more importantly, what David could have done to him in that place of vulnerability. God is always in the place of strength. We are always in the place of vulnerability with respect to God, dare I say it. But God's never the aggressor towards us. God is never going to chase us down like Saul did to David. Ultimately, in this narrative, we see the grace of God at work particularly in the way in which God promised to David that he would be king. And not even Saul would get in the way of that. What God sets in motion, God fulfills. Let me finish with this. Going right back to that story that I told you at the beginning. From... That particular moment on with Chris, he actually became a pretty good friend of mine. Even though we were, we were a couple of years apart, we played a lot of sport together. And we did know each other before that time. And there's a whole other story that, that goes along with what it is that uh, went on. But he actually helped me out in a really, really difficult situation at another point in time after that, in a way which showed me quite a degree of mercy. Mercy binds people together. God's grace extended in mercy binds us to God in a very, very deep way. And from, from here on in, you know what? Saul didn't stop coming at David. He kept on coming. But he knew, and I guess David, by the same token, knew that his heart was one of mercy towards Saul and he wouldn't lay his hand against him. God's heart is one of mercy towards us as well. So if you need some refreshing in your faith today, be refreshed in the mercy of God. It might not be something that you think about a lot, but God has saved us and he spares us from a whole lot that sometimes we don't even know. And his plans and his purposes for us are good because he's a good God and he's the God that has that position of power and chooses to lead us in paths that lead to life and not death. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would strengthen faith amongst each one of us, that you would help us to be able to see the, the mercy that you show us, the grace that you show us, that it would strengthen our faith in you. God, thank you that we see in, in David a, a glimpse of, of your character, the way in which he treated Saul. Lord, we can, we can see in part the way in which you treat us. I ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for those times when we have sought to put ourselves above you. 
Forgive us for those times when we have sought to withhold ourselves from you. And give us hearts and ears to hear your words of truth. That you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Help us to hear that we are forgiven people. And lead us on from this place into the life that you have for us, personally and collectively. Help us to be merciful to those around about us as you strengthen us to do so and be so, Holy Spirit. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.